if this is your uh, first Sunday with us or first Sunday here in a while, we uh, flipped the room uh, this past week, and uh, some of you are so close to the front, I'm afraid revival might break out this morning. <laughs> and you probably would tell me, you're just trying to see the TVs, <laughs> you don't want to be as far back, and that's cool too. Um, we're really grateful that you're here. We really appreciate your patience. Uh, we are probably getting some little kinks worked out with the setup here. We really appreciate your feedback uh, as we think through whether this uh, setup might be a more appropriate long-term solution when uh, renovations begin here in the gym. Uh, but if I look a little disoriented here on the stage, it's because I don't know where any of you are anymore. Uh, so I'm going to try to get used to that. You just have to stay in that seat for the next few months. Uh, don't move. Um, well, we're really grateful that you're here. Uh, really excited to begin um, a new study in God's Word together. And I want to begin by uh, asking you to think about one of the, um, the biggest buzzworthy cultural moments of 2023 known as Barbenheimer. All right. Other than the fact that the films Barbie and Oppenheimer were released on the same day, they appear to have very little in common. Uh, the world of Barbie is a bubblegum pink utopia where everyone is smiling and nice and every night is girls' night. Meanwhile, the wor world of Oppenheimer is a grim reality where men invent weapons of mass destruction and destroy each other in the process. These movies seem like they have nothing in common. And yeah, despite their differences, the, the films really do have a lot in common in how they depict the two extremes in the battle of the sexes. Uh, the women in Oppenheimer, and there's really only two women of consequence in the entire film, the women in Oppenheimer exist either as sex objects or domesticated housewife and mother, while the men in Barbie don't have any real jobs and only exist as accessories to Barbie, kind of like roller skates or a purse. In a sense, Barbenheimer is like a snapshot of two extreme approaches to gender in our world. On the one hand, there's what's called patriarchy. Oppenheimer's a good example of patriarchy, an approach to gender that believes that men are in some sense superior to women and should lead them in every area of life. Men and women are different, but they're not truly equal. It's the basic message of patriarchy. On the other extreme, Barbie is a good example of feminism, which believes that women are just as good as men and should be able to do anything that a man can do. So men and women are equal, but they're not truly different. Unlike Barbenheimer, the Bible cuts between both extremes. The big idea I hope to show you from this morning's text and over the course of this sermon series, is that men and women are both equal and different. Men and women are both equal and different. 
Now, if you're our guest this morning, our normal practice at PBC is to take a, book of the Bi- take a book of the Bible and do our best to go verse by verse, studying a book of Scripture together. And we're going to get back to that soon, studying the book of Judges in a few months. But occasionally, it's important and helpful for us in, in the church life to look at what the Bible says about a particular topic uh, and, and to study from God's Word, looking at the Scriptures, what God's Word says about a particular topic. Now, this topic in particular is absolutely essential, church. We understand it from a biblical perspective. Hear me, brothers and sisters and friends. You are being preached to regularly about manhood and womanhood. From TikTok to Twitter to Fox News, to CNN, to the big blockbusters in the box office, to the innocently looking little cartoons that your children watches, to the the TV shows that you watch, to the newspaper, if you're a newspaper guy, you are being preached to about what it means to be a man and a woman. I would suggest that perhaps you are being preached to for hours upon hours every single week. We're going to try over the next six weeks to just spend a little bit of time trying to correct some of those imbalances with the truthfulness of God's word. With God's help, In this series, we're going to study what his word says about men and women in Christ, in marriage, in the family, in the church, and in a confused age. But today, we're going to begin by looking at what God's word says about men and women in the beginning. And again, the big idea I want to convey this morning is that men and women are equal and different. I want to show you with God's help three truths from the first three chapters of Genesis that support this basic idea. Men and women were created with equal value, the first truth. Men and women are are created with different, or called to different roles. That's the second truth. And men and women are clinging to equal hope. That's the third truth. I want to walk through this together. Beginning with, number one, we were created with equal value. Men and women are created with equal value. It's probably not a surprise to you, that, but, but for most of human history, people have really taught and really believed that men, men were superior to women. For example, did you know that the word hysterical Did you know that it comes from the Greek word for the uterus? Greek physicians like Hippocrates really believed that hysteria was a woman's affliction. And only a woman could become hysterical. Now, ladies, don't get hysterical. I'm just telling you what it says in history. Not saying we believe that, but that's where the word came from. There's a Greek philosopher named Fintus who wrote, courage and intelligence are more appropriately male qualities because of the strength of men's bodies and the power of their minds. Chastity is more appropriately female, end quote. Now, comments like this serve to do two really horrible things. 
One, they, they, they taught that men were intellectually superior to women. And two, that they functioned to create two different sets of morality. Women, it's appropriate for them to be chaste and pure, but that's really not the domain of men. And so in the ancient world, it was quite common, quite expected for men to be really promiscuous while a woman could be divorced or even executed if she were so. In the Greco-Roman world, it was common for baby girls to be exposed to the elements and abandoned to die. Few of any families in the ancient world had more than one daughter because what you wanted were sons. These are not merely the crazy ideas of the ancient. Consider a modern soul like the late, great Charles Darwin who wrote this. Man is more courageous, pugnacious, and energetic than woman and has a more inventive genius and has achieved a higher existence in whatever he takes up than woman can attain. In the Western world, due to ideas like this, Women have had to fight for education, for the right to work outside the home, for the right to own property, for the right to vote. But I would suggest in recent years, the pendulum has swung to the opposite extreme. Whether it's trending hashtags like kill all men, t-shirts with slogans like so many men, so little ammunition, or the recent onslaught of books with titles like I Hate Men, The End of Men, and Are Men Necessary? Hatred of men is on the rise. One author said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. There's no such thing. A recent uh, USA Today report found that on college campuses, masculinity is almost never discussed except in negative terms and except with the prefix toxic attached. One report of popular media depictions of men found that more than 75% of all media representations of men depicted them as villains, aggressors, perverts, and philanderers. And so, with good reason, many men feel ashamed today of being masculine, being who they are. How does the Bible speak against both extremes? I want you to notice in the book of Genesis three proofs that men and women are created equal. First, both men and women are made in God's image. Look in your Bibles at Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 26. And it'll help you if you have a copy of God's Word on your lap or in your app that you can follow along with as we look at the text together. So look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I've actually had conversations with people about that passage, and they say, wait a minute, 
it says that only man is created in God's image, right? The text says, let us make man in our image. God created man in his own image. And, and the, the argument goes that, that men are kind of like the higher reflection of the image of God and women are a lesser version of that. But to argue that absolutely misunderstands the way that Hebrew poetry works. Hebrew poetry, unlike English poetry, is, it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't work through rhyme but through parallelism. So I want you to see on the screen the way that this verse would look in your Bibles. Let's put the next slide up on the screen. So God created man in his own image. There's line one, two parallel lines underneath it. They're conveying the same idea. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now notice in the, that each line is parallel to the line before. In, in line one, God is the subject. Let's move to the next slide. God is the subject. You see, subject is God. The verb is created. The direct object is man. And the prepositional phrase is, is in his own image. And the next line, the second line, let's move to the next slide. In the image of God, there's a prepositional phrase. He, that's God, he's the subject. Created is the verb. Direct object is him. It's the same basic idea. The order is just switched around. Now go to the third slide. Look at what's changed. He, God, is the subject. It's the same as in the first two lines. Created, same verb in all three lines. The direct object now is them, but the prepositional phrase no longer is the image of God, but male and female. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that part of what it means to be in the image of God is your maleness and your femaleness. That's who you are. That's what it means. Being in the image of God is not something reserved only for men, but for all humanity. So when the text says, let us make man in our image, the word is referring to mankind, not just to males. Ray Ortland helpfully summarizes it this way. He says, man was created as royalty in God's world, male and female alike, bearing the divine glory equally. So, second proof, the men and women were created with equal value. It's seen in the truth that both men and women are given dominion over the earth. Look at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice that God does not give dominion just to Adam, to them. God blesses them. God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Now, Adam and Eve will exercise their dominion in different ways, as we'll soon see. But both Men and women are called to exercise dominion over the world in which we live. A third proof that we are created with equal value is that together, men and women are very good. At the end of chapter one, you'll notice that throughout the chapter, at the end of every day of creation, God looks at what he makes and he says, it's good. But at the end of the final day of creation, God looks at it and he says, this is very good. But there was something on the sixth day of creation 
that wasn't good. I want you to fast forward in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And while you're turning there, you need to understand that chapter 2 is not a second account of creation. This is a flashback, a literary flashback to the sixth day of creation. Uh, the, The writer of Genesis is now zooming in, if you will, and telling us more details about what happened in the creation of Adam and Eve on day six. And look at what he says in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Even in a perfect world, without sin, without suffering, without death, God looks at his creation and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. There's something missing here. Now, I want you to notice, Adam did not file a complaint. Adam, like a lot of men, perhaps, was a little bit blissfully ignorant. Men, you ever found yourself there? Everything's fine. And then your wife says, yeah, everything is fine. And you realize that doesn't mean fine. <laughs> he, not, he doesn't really realize it. He's, she's having a good time, counting all the animals, giving them names, all that sort of stuff. But God sees, and God says, this is not good. And only after the creation of Eve do we get the words in Genesis 1.31 that this is very Men and women, you are equally created in the image of God. You have equal value before your creator. But that's not the end of the story because men and women are equal and different. And I want us to consider our differences by examining how we were called to different roles. Now, before we consider these differences, uh, let's consider for a moment the way that many, in many ways, men and women are called to the same things. I want you to imagine men and women kind of like a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap in the middle and on the edges, there's the, the different unique things that we are called to as men and women. Much of what God requires of his people, he requires of both men and women. For example, both men and women are called to repent and believe the gospel. Both men and women are called to be baptized as believers in Christ. Both men and women are called to commit themselves to the life and health of a local church. Both men and women are called to greet one another, to welcome one another, to gather together, to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be at peace with one another, and on and on we could go. As Dorothy Sayers says, the first thing that strikes the careless observer is that women are unlike men. They are the opposite sex. But the fundamental thing is that women are more like men than anything else in the world. They're human beings. And yet, the Bible does present men and women, despite all of our similarities, the Bible does present us having different roles, particularly in the home and in the church. Now, we're going to examine those roles at length 
over the next few weeks. But for now, I want, I want to show you that these differences are not the result of sin, but they're part of God's good design in the beginning. I want, I want to show you four clues in the first three chapters of Genesis that we were called to different roles. Uh, clue number one is that Eve was created as Adam's helper. Look again at that literary flashback in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, God says Adam needs a helper. God then parades all of the animals before Adam, almost just to make a point. None of these guys are going to be able to help you, Adam. And then he concludes that section by saying, there was not found a helper fit for him. Only Eve will be the helper that Adam needs. Now, ladies, I wonder if you hear that, and your first instinct is to say, oh, geez, he gets to be the important man, and I get to be his diminutive little helper. Is this offensive? I think we need to test those feelings, that reaction by the scriptures. Does the word helper imply inferiority? Kevin DeYoung really helpfully says this. He says, being a helper carries no connotations of diminished worth or status. For God is sometimes called the helper of Israel. The word ezer or helper is a functional term, not a demeaning one. Just as God at times comes alongside to help his people, so the role of the woman in the relationship to her husband is that of a helper. Don't forget that Jesus himself refers to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, eternally, co-equally God. And he says, I'm going to send helper to you. To be a helper is not demeaning with the lens of Scripture. It's not. It might feel that way to you, but we test that by the Scriptures. Is the Spirit a demeaning version of God? Absolutely not. He's beloved, the eternal third person of the Trinity, glorious in all His perfections. And yet, Jesus calls Him a helper. So what does this mean practically? Well, ladies, hear me very carefully. You are not called or commanded to be a helper to every man. That's huge. Man comes up to you and says, will you help me? You don't have to help him just because you're a woman and he's a man. Why is Eve Adam's helper? Because Eve is Adam's bride. So this is not a call for all women to be helpers to all men, but for a wife to function as a helper to her husband. Lest you think that this is merely an Old Testament concept, consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, man was not made from woman, 
but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, married ladies, you're here and you're a wife, you have a husband. This does mean that in some sense, you are called to come alongside your husband as his helper. We'll talk more about what that means as we move along. But to the husbands in this room, this does not mean that your wife's purpose is to do your every bidding. If you go home from work later this week, and you sit in your recliner, and you just relax, and you say, wife, give me a fill in the blank. Pastor said, I'm just going to say right now, I did not say that. <laughs> I did not say that. That is not what this means. Husbands, you are called to love your bride with the love of Christ. And your wife helps you to do that. Her job is not to be your butler or nanny or mother or nurse or whatever you want to put in that blank. You exist to lead and love and cherish her and she comes alongside you to help you do that to the glory of God. So let's be careful, men, not to abuse the meaning here. Let me say a word to the singles in this room, to the single ladies you ought to be very careful in choosing a husband. You ought to ask yourself, that man might be really handsome and really interesting, and he might be sweeping you off your feet, but you ought to ask yourself at some point, do I really want to devote my life and my energies to being a helper to him? Is he the kind of man who would be a delight to help? And if the answer is no, then run away. Also, to the single ladies in this room, hear me. No matter how old you are, single lady, you are not living without a purpose if you don't have a man to help. That is not what that means. Single ladies, you have purpose and glory in Christ. God promises his people a name better than sons and daughters. You do not need a man to have purpose. But if you have a man, you have a calling to love and support and help him. But without a man, that doesn't mean you're some sort of a lesser than in the body of Christ. No, dear sister. If you read Paul's letters, Many, many women are mentioned positively throughout his letters of women that are absolutely essential to the life and health of the church. And most of them are mentioned without the name of a husband attached. To the single men in this room, hear me clearly. You ought to be ordering your life in such a way that a godly single young lady would love to come alongside you and help you in the life that you're building. Ask yourself, single men, would a godly, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving young lady want to help me in this? And if the answer is no, then reorder your life so that she might want to come alongside you and help in what you're building. 
perhaps for some of our single men, the temptation is to build a life to the glorification of self. And nobody wants to come alongside and help you build an altar to you. Well, the first clue that we're called to different roles is that Eve was created as Adam's helper. The second clue is that Adam was created first. You see that clearly in verses 21 to 23. God causes Adam to fall asleep, takes one of his ribs, uses the rib to create Eve. Now that order, the order of creation, might seem like a relatively arbitrary thing. Does it really matter? Is this really a clue that men and women are called to different roles? When the Apostle Paul is talking about different roles and responsibilities for men and women in the church, he actually brings this very point up. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, listen to verses 12 and 13. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. You see, Paul looks at the order of creation and he says, there's something meaningful here. Now, ladies, you might look at that verse and you might have a lot of questions. Now, I'm going to answer some of those in a second, but let me just tell you something we're going to do for this sermon series. Uh, given that there's a lot of opportunity for misunderstanding as we dive into these really touchy subjects, uh, for about 30 minutes at the end of every one of these sermons, I'm going to grab a stool and sit down right up here after the service. And if you have questions about anything from the sermon, or you just want to watch and see if there's a train wreck, you just come up here for about 30 minutes, and I'll answer to the best of my ability every question that I can. If you've got kids in the nursery, please get them first, Okay. <laughs> Uh, and if you don't want to, and you know, some of you, as soon as we say the benediction, man, we're not even done with the benediction. You're halfway to lunch. That's fine. Some of you like to hang out in fellowship. You, you don't have any interest in that. Totally fine. You do you. It's totally fine. But if you're interested, if you have questions, come on up, and I'll do my best. I want to try to do that for the next few weeks so that we can really make sure we're understanding this. But let me see if I can answer Maybe some of the questions that we might have looking at that verse there on the screen, okay? We're going to dive into that passage in a few weeks, but for now, I want you to hear me. Paul is not saying that a woman can't teach a man anything. He is not saying that a woman can't exercise authority anywhere. He is not saying that a woman is to remain quiet everywhere. He is referring to a specific kind of teaching and authority, which is the responsibility of pastors in the life of the local church. So really in a nutshell, 1 Timothy 2.12 is not saying, ladies, that you have to close your mouths until the service is over. We know from other places in the New Testament that women prayed in the gatherings, women sang in the gatherings, women encourage and speak and build one another up in the gatherings, but there is a type of speaking, a type of teaching that is limited not just to all men, but to only a specific group of qualified men. That's called the office of elder or pastor. If that feels odd or offensive to you still, please be patient. And we'll dive neck deep into that passage in a few weeks. 
But for now, the important thing to notice is that, that the order of creation is, in Paul's mind, evidence that men and women are different. We're different. And yet, we need to reiterate, this is not a difference in value, but a difference in responsibilities and roles. I don't think anybody expresses this more beautifully than Matthew Henry. He says, the woman was made of a rib uh, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And also, this is a good reason why, wives, you should snuggle with your husbands. That's for you, Holly. I love you. (laughs) This is going to be a fun time together, brothers and sisters. That was not in my manuscript, by the way. That was free. All right, third clue. Adam was responsible for Eve's sin. A third clue that we have different responsibilities is that Adam is held responsible. If you move on to Genesis chapter 3, we learn that Eve is tempted by the serpent to disobey God. And yet, even though both Adam and Eve sinned against God and ate the fruit, the text is clear that Adam is held responsible in a way that Eve is not. What is the first question that God asks in the Bible? Adam, where are you? It's not because God does not know where Adam is. He knows exactly where Adam is. It is because he is calling Adam to account. Listen to the way Paul records the fall of man in Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, look at the text, through one man. Not through one woman. Eve ate the fruit first. I've heard men say, if it weren't for Eve eating the fruit, through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, who was of the one who was to come. Now hear me, the Bible is not saying that Eve was innocent. Eve is very guilty. But even though... Eve was guilty, Adam is responsible. New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger puts it like this. He says, in the end, it is the man, not the woman, who is primarily held responsible for the rebellious act. Now, this principle is really helpfully illustrated by one pastor. He says, imagine a young sailor disobeys orders, and he runs a ship aground in the middle of the night while the captain is sleeping. The young sailor is going to face some consequences, but he was going to get out of the Navy in six months anyways. But who is held responsible for the destruction of that ship? It's the captain. It's the captain. The young sailor is guilty, but the captain is responsible. Brother, husbands, this means... You 
are responsible for what happens in your home. This does not mean that your wife has no guilt. It does mean that you are responsible and will answer even for her guilt. That is weighty, is it not? When your wife is bitter or angry or given to gossip or any other sin, she is guilty, but you are responsible. When your children are disobedient, lazy, disrespectful, they are guilty, but you are responsible. Men, this might seem pretty unfair to you, but it is part of what it means to be the head of the home. And whether you believe like it's true or not, whether you act like it's true or not, the day is coming when you will give an account. Your wife, your children might be guilty, but you are responsible, husband. Are you living like that's true? It's a weighty thing, men. I would suggest to you that it would be wise and good for us to think long and hard and deeply and carefully about what it means for us to take responsibility in our homes. And men, if you hear that and that's paralyzing to you, I would love to come alongside you and help you as best as I can. I know our other elders would too. Listen to me. Some of you men, you're naturally big personalities and this is easy for you. But some of you men are naturally passive. And this is terrifying. Just remember that Adam was with Eve when she ate the fruit and he sat by and did nothing. If you feel paralyzed by this, you are not alone. But there is hope in the gospel and in the scriptures and in your church if you would lean on us for help. Final clue of our differences in the text is that Adam and Eve were cursed differently. Adam and Eve were cursed differently. After, after confronting both Adam and Eve... God begins to explain how the curse of sin is going to, it's going to work its tendrils into every dynamic of human existence. Look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of, all the day, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I want you to notice the different ways that Adam and Eve are cursed. I believe that they are cursed in their primary domain. Adam is cursed in is his primary domain, the field. 
As a result of sin, work will be painful. And Eve is cursed in her primary domain, the family. As a result of sin, childbearing will be painful. Now, you might hear that, and your inner attorney might be freaking out. Are you saying only men can work outside the home? Are you saying that a a woman's only purpose is to be a breeder? Hear me, I'm not saying any of those things. I am saying that the scriptures teach that men and women have a primary domain, and we see a glimpse of that right here in the beginning. I want to dive deeper into what that means in the next few weeks. I hope that you'll stick with us and be back to study God's word on this. But there there are differences here between men and women. Well, if the story ends here, whether we're equal or different doesn't really matter all that much, does it? Because if the story ends with a curse, then we have no hope. Just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But the story doesn't end with a curse. Notice the final truth about men and women in the beginning. Number three, we are clinging to equal hope. Despite the ways that Adam and Eve were cursed differently, I want you to notice in two important ways how the curse of sin affects both men and women in the same way. First, the curse of sin affects everybody's horizontal relationships. See it in the garden, right? Uh, Immediately after eating the fruit, Adam and Eve are ashamed. They, They existed together in complete openness. And now they're covering themselves and hiding themselves from each other. And then when God comes and confronts Adam, what what do they do? Adam says, that woman that you gave me, she made me do it. Blaming. I wonder, husbands and wives, has the blame game crept into your marriage? That's part of the devastation of sin. Shame, blame, broken, devastated relationships. God's design for beneficial headship and submissive helping will now be marked by sinful rebellion and abusive leadership. Look at Genesis 3.16. God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's chaos and destruction and abuse that's crept into the marriage relationship. We could say that every henpecked husband and every battered wife can trace their roots to right here in the garden. But there's something even worse than that. Sin affects horizontally our relationships for men and women. Even worse is that sin devastates our vertical relationship with God. Both men and women have been cut off from intimacy with God because of the devastation of sin. Because God is holy, a single sin is enough to be banished from His presence forever. Think about that. What's you in here? You know the story of Adam and Eve. You know that they sin against God and then they're cast out of the garden. 
Doesn't that give you a picture of the holiness of God? One sin is enough to be cast out of his presence forever. And yet, God does not leave Adam and Eve without hope. God moves towards Adam and Eve, even as he banishes them from the garden, he moves towards them in love to cover over their sin. Look at Genesis 3, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, I know it's highly significant that the covering that God made for Adam and Eve required the death of an innocent animal. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You cannot be forgiven by a holy God unless blood is shed. And throughout the Old Testament, there's a long, dark, bloody history of countless sacrifices and God's people being temporarily covered over until they sinned again and needed another one. Until the coming of the one who would be the forever covering for God's people. And God prophesies he's coming right here in Genesis 3. Look at the words that he says to the snake in verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is a reference to Jesus Christ who in the fullness of time will be born of a virgin woman. The bruising of his heel refers to the suffering and death on the cross in our place. But Jesus' death would not be final. The grave could not hold him. And three days later, he would walk out of the tomb and stomp on the head of the serpent. That was loud. (laughs) He is the snake crusher. And women and men together cling to the same hope in Christ. Whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, anybody and everybody can come to this Jesus and be saved. Because even though we are different, we have equal value and we have equal access to Christ and we can cling to the same hope in Christ. So I would ask you, friend, if you haven't put your faith in this Jesus, would you run to him today? Would you talk to someone around you after the service about what it means to put your faith in Christ? You can come to him and he will not cast you out. If we were to put Christianity on the Barbenheimer spectrum, I think unfortunately there's far too many people who would view Christianity as being anti-women or even misogynistic. I think that's because we've bought into the lies of feminism more than we care to admit. Perhaps we're so accustomed to the idea that men and women are equal but not truly different 
that anything that highlights the differences between us feels a bit backwards and outdated. But, but in the first few centuries of the church, in a time when men and women were viewed as, uh, as, when men were viewed as superior to women, women flocked to the church in staggering numbers. Some suggest as many as two-thirds or maybe even 80% of early church members were women. Some historians have expressed shock that all women didn't become Christians because the life expectancy and and the quality of life for Christian women was absolutely out of this world compared to what was available to them in the rest of the world. The early church dignified women by giving them real opportunities for involvement in the life of the local church. And the early church attracted women by being against sexual immorality among men, easy divorce, abortion, infanticide, prostitution, child brides, and much, much more. For these reasons and more, an author named Sarah Sumner says this, feminism is not something that must be added to Christianity in order for the church to honor women. The gospel itself is pro-women. Anyone who thinks treating women fairly is a feminist thing to do, not a Christian thing to do, doesn't understand Christianity. My prayer is that we will understand one another better, Christianity better, the gospel better, and our great God better as we study what his word says about men and women. Would you pray with me?